Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Feingold, editor of New Hampshire Business Review, bringing our Down to Business podcast uh, along with, I always forget to say it in the right order, along with our associate editor, Amanda Andrews. And are you the executive producer this week? I believe, I believe so. so. I, I call you the executive producer. <laughs> and this week we have as our guest Gordon Simmons, who was who has been uh, involved in the financial service industry for many, many years. He served as CEO of Service Credit Union, one of the most uh, notable uh, institutions in, in New Hampshire. Uh, and we have him on because I think speaking for myself and for Amanda, we're confused by what's going on in terms of the the banking situation, the, this, the financial services situation in the United States and apparently worldwide, considering it's also affected the uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, so, Gordon, first of all, welcome, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Thank you. And uh, could you kind of give me your idea of your overview of like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature? What what was what was the impetus for for those two failures from your perspective? Well, from my perspective, I think, well, first of all, Silicon Valley Bank grew at too fast a pace. Uh, in two, 2018, they were about 50, million, 50 billion in assets. And in 2021, at the end of the year, 2022 area, they were uh, the 16th largest bank in America. And they had grown to, to about uh, 200, 200 billion, mm. 209 billion to be exact. And so, First of all, you know, the growth didn't keep pace with their, their capital, their ratio, their, their net worth. And that's always a, a bad sign. You can't grow that fast and not, not uh, continue to, to uh, watch your, your net income and your, your net worth. So that's the beginning part. I think that's uh, the first problem that they had just grew too fast. Hmm. The other thing I noticed is uh, in my readings, is they were inadequately capitalized. Uh, they had unrestricted executive uh, wages, payments, and uh, poorly managed as far as interest rate risk is concerned. But probably that third one uh, is uh, the big catalyst as to why they were about to fail or failed. Yeah, when you, when you say they're inadequately capitalized, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, Banks are required to have a, a minimum of 8% capital, okay? And uh, they only had six at the time that they were, actually at the end of 2022, they had 5.8, mm. even less than the six that they had two years earlier. Mm. So they weren't following uh, federal guidelines and regulations in regards to, to uh, capital. Uh, so I'd have to fault uh, those in charge of the bank for not doing that. That would be the CFO, the CEO, and I have to give some some credit to the board of directors as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the board does have fiduciary responsibility on all this. <laughs> exactly. In the end, they're the ones who are really in charge of the bank. Exactly. Uh, so well, I'm interested. I'm interested. You mentioned the number two hundred million, two hundred billion. Yes. Now, from what I remember. We had Dodd-Frank after the massive financial crisis of 08, 09. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was supposed to be originally affecting banks of 50 billion or more. And then it was modified to just cover the biggest banks. And I remember reading an article shortly after the failure of mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank is that 
the big banks, you know, the, the Bank of America, JP Morgan, and Citibank, th that they're in good shape because they have to follow Todd Frank yep. and they do those stress tests every year. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen what happened was that Silicon Valley Bank didn't have to do the stress tests. Mm -hmm. That is how am I understanding it that way? Well, that's true. I think you're absolutely correct. They weren't following Dodd Frank, they weren't following new regulations. And uh, uh, there are, you know, the the uh, capital ratios of 8% I mentioned earlier yeah. uh, for banks is the minimum. That's the minimum. Yeah. And those that are capitalized at 10.5% are well capitalized. And uh, they those those banks would most likely not have to follow Dodd-Frank. Dodd mm. So, um, you know, I, I think that what's happened here in the case of Silicon Valley is one, they grew too fast. Mm. Two, they attracted a certain clientele that probably was, you know, what they attracted was the uh, the young high tech startups who are very interest rate sensitive. And and I look at their portfolio and I'd say what they they had uh, done is they had invested a great deal of their funds into uh, uh, bonds, government securities, mm -hmm. fixed rate. And in a, in a situation where interest rates are rising as they are today, the Fed has raised rates 2%, two full percent mm -hmm. in the last six months. And I don't think that's over. Yeah. So you had this rate sensitivity by the, the, uh, uh, the young high-tech startups. They were feeling it. They're extremely sensitive to interest rate increases themselves. And so they began withdrawing money. And, the Fed was actually a culprit in this too, to a degree. I'm not going to blame the Fed. I'm just going to say that was a result. They raised interest rates and mm -hmm. that further har harmed uh, the solvency of Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. And then you have, then you have, excuse me, but then you have uh, these uh, multiple venture capitalists that are out there looking out for their own investments and their own goals. And they took to Twitter and they were trying to raise alarms about the bank's solvency. Well, that didn't help Silicon Valley Bank either. Hmm. And that's what led to the $42 billion of withdrawals in one day when they closed their doors. Yeah, it, it, I, I was curious about that. You know, you know we all, I, was all, I remember when I, when I was a kid, I think, the FDIC insurance was like $25,000 or something on an account or 50,000. And they raised the limit to 250. Mm -hmm. I always was told that that's, you know, what you did. I and mean, that's, that's it. And then all of a sudden these guys, <laughs> their deposits, uh, you know, these billions of dollars in deposits covered by the, by the uh, FDIC, I guess. And I know that's not coming out of taxpayer money, but it's going to be coming out of someone's pocket. And uh, it's 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 kind of it's it's like sending a mis mixed message about what insurance is about. Well, you're right about the insurance. It's a little confusing. We all know that banks and credit unions insure their their customers and members' accounts up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars total accounts. Yeah. Uh, so every dollar above that it would could be a lost dollar if your bank goes under. And yeah. uh, you know. Uh, Who's paying for that? Well, the insurance is paid for by the financial institution. Mm. 
they have to uh, they have to to pay for that coverage, uh, but you know those those banks out there that that are taking on uninsured deposits as Silicon Valley Bank did hmm. are creating a great risk <clears throat> for their clientele because it's hot money and. Uh, these are deposits that will be readily withdrawn as interest rates rise, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, SVB's uh, clientele were these high-tech types from Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. so, so they certainly would withdraw them. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, they got skittish about what was happening with their money at, at the bank, uh, fueled by many factors, not just the Federal Reserve interest rate rises and not just the capital ventures who were out there on Twitter uh, telling these people that they should be concerned about their deposits, but other factors as well. And so that just started a landslide, like snowball effect downhill, where they all came in and tried to withdraw the funds mm. and a very relatively short time, just couple of days and that one day in particular uh when they withdrew 42 billion dollars that's a lot of money that's a lot of money uh yeah i, I don't want to dwell on this too much but if you could just explain what the signature bank situation was it's, it's similar in some ways i guess i know they had some very large uh depositors well i think it's almost identical uh you know i go back to the requirement or the, the basic requirement of a bank is uh, not to, to carry more than 30% of their balance sheets with unsecured deposits. And when you go above that total, like these two banks did, then you're going to have a situation where you may have, that's hot money, people will come and take it out. So uh, especially if there's a fear that your bank may fail. And that's exactly what happened here. Mm. Mm. It's really, it's 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 an instructive situation. I mean, I I know I'm old enough to remember the uh, mm. crisis in in the late '80s, early '90s. You know, mm. I, I was around when I was working at the Business Review when they shut down five New Hampshire banks in one day. They just <laughs> the just came in and did it, yeah. and you know that that was a much different situation. I mean, because mm. it was it was a it was endemic. It was it was really just spread across the nation that that problem and the sense i get is that this is kind of not localized obviously this is happened in new york and in california but it's it's more constrained is is that is that a good way to look at this well i believe so i believe it's more constrained i i, I think banks uh and uh, other financial institutions like credit unions are doing their very best to ensure that their members best interests are served and that they're protecting their assets uh, their deposits with their bank uh, and operating more more carefully day to day than they did back in the 80s and and 70s 80s mm -hmm. and 90s so uh, and the regulations that they each have to follow are certainly helping in that regard as well yeah <clears throat> I just like you mentioned something that was interesting you mentioned how uh, one of the one of the causes of Silicon Valley Bank's uh, collapse was that the the rapid rise in interest rates by the Fed, 
in order to, and, and that's being done to fight inflation. And you've written a piece for us in the Business Review about uh, inflation in particular. Do you, could you give us your thoughts about where that's headed now? Is the, is, the Fed, is the Fed being successful, do you get in your view, on restraining inflation? Well, if any of us have gone to the grocery store lately or pumped gas into our car, we realize that inflation is rampant right now. Uh, it, it's running about 6%. Hmm. I will grant that the Fed did bring, it, bring inflation down from last year where it was 7.8%, hmm. uh, but much more needs to be done. I'm sure they're going to continue raising interest rates. I wouldn't be surprised to see employment double from what it hmm. is right now because of that. Wow. And then that would be that would be a recession numbers. I mean, I guess if unemployment doubled, I wouldn't call it recession. It's more like a depression, I think. Uh, but I, I don't. I want to point something out here that we talked about, and I don't want any of your listeners to be scared by what's happening in the financial markets today, uh, because it was a lot worse in two thousand eight than it is right now with the fall of Washington Mutual. But their money is safe. Up to $250,000 is fully insured and deposits above that. Uh, I, I just don't think anyone needs to be, be alarmed by the recent bank failures. Uh, mm. It's not going to be a trend that we're going to see continuing. I just don't believe that. Mm. Yeah, that's a sense I get as well. So in terms of, in terms of you, you, you used the, the D word there. And I wish I, you could explain a little bit more why you said depression, because, <laughs> uh, you know. No, 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 no. Uh, at the very most, the recession. And, okay. uh, you know, there'll be less money in circulation because of the high interest rates. And we all, we people, we will not have, we workers will not have enough money to go out and buy some things that we would otherwise have bought at lower interest rates because uh, financing would be high. Uh, the good, the good side of that is, of course, uh, for those of us who can save, uh, we should experience higher interest rates on our savings, our CDs, and so on. But uh, you know, as that continues, the stock market will also be depressed mm -hmm. because now people who were investing in the stock market will turn around and deposit funds with their local bank or credit union uh, into CDs because mm -hmm. those rates will rise. Yeah. Is, is that, um, I know that I remember, I remember, I've remember this happening in the seventies when interest rates, you know, were very high, doubled way into the high double digits by the early eighties. And that was the situation. Um, do you, do you think that the, there's a certain limit to where the Fed will put interest rates? I, no, I don't think, well, <clears throat> I was going to say, I don't think there's a limit, but there is. Uh, I have to be cautious about just how high they do raise the rates. And I do think by cautiously raising rates at a slower pace going forward, they will achieve their goal. They know that, and they mm -hmm. will. Uh, but as I said, unemployment is going to increase. Uh, stock market uh, investments are going to decrease. Um, more people unemployed. So it's going to be a spiral effect until we get back on track to where we were, where uh, we, we didn't have this inflationary spiral. And we were, uh, most of us were working and uh, 
contributing to the economy. That's what it's really all about in the end. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it seems to me that we've had like a, such a prolonged time with low interest rates that I think people are, and low inflation, I mean, and low interest rates, mm -hmm. that people are kind of not really uh, prepared for even, you know, for, for, for going through a wild ride at this point. But I guess they'll get used to it. Well, we won't have any choice. <laughs> we yeah, just have to, get, have to accept it. That, that's uh, what's going to happen. It is happening. Yeah. But we must fight the inflation because, uh, you know, mm. it's uncomfortable going to the grocery store and buy a dozen eggs and have to pay $7. Mm. That's and that's, that's, the, that's the small example of the ripple effect of what's happening throughout our economy right now. Now, the, the, the other th the, the, related to this is this idea that... Um, with inflation at let's say six percent now, what what do you think it? How long of time frame are you talking about in in, in your mind for how long this will take to get under control? Well, if, if it I, I, on I, current path. I really I really hesitate to put a time limit on it, uh, yeah. simply because it it does take its time. It's nothing that happens overnight. Mm. So we'll be looking at rising interest rates. Uh, in the certainly near future hmm. and the intermediate future, I believe, but not the far future. So, you know, uh, if I just want to take a, a guess, I, I would think, and it's really all it is, is a guess, uh, we're looking at higher interest rates now, probably going forward for another few years. Hmm. Are, are you talking about continued... Delta just keep ratcheting. The Fed will just keep ratcheting it up. The no, rates. no, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't want to give you that impression. That's not what I meant. Okay. I meant living with higher rates as they are now for a few more years. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that, the, as I mentioned, that the Federal Reserve will raise rates again, but at a more restrained mm. pace, um, perhaps 25 basis points at a time, no more mm. than 50. Uh, until they think they've achieved their goal. Uh, and, and we all can see that if they're achieving their goal based upon the prices we pay for gas and food and uh, other expenses we have, um, and along with the unemployment. You know, I wanna make, wanna make one comment here. Uh, I do believe highly in technology and uh, I am, I'm very pleased to see that during the pandemic, I'm not pleased about the pandemic, but I'm pleased yeah. about what I read, and that is 60% of the workforce were working from home mm -hmm. and successfully working from home as well, which I think is really going to be the wave of the present and future. And I applaud all those companies that are doing that because it benefits everyone, it benefits the employee, uh, and it benefits the employer. The employee benefits because they uh, <clears throat> no longer have to pay for childcare costs. They don't have gasoline expense. Uh, it's just a number of expenses that they won't encounter. Plus they have family time, they can work on their own pace. Uh, if we have a happier employee in a case like that. The employer, mm -hmm. they benefit because they, they don't have to have the plant and equipment available for them to work at a central point or central points it's multiple uh, and so the, the cost of doing business should decrease as opposed to increasing 
Anyway, so I wanted to mention that. And uh, uh, more recently, I've seen that the a number of uh, US workers working from home is about 30%, about a third of our labor force. Hmm. That's really, I mean, I, I, I noticed that uh, there've been a lot of studies about the effectiveness of remote work, but that a lot of companies are basically saying, all right, pandemic's over, they get back to the office, hmm. but do you think they're making a mistake or to force people back into the office? Well, you know, this forcing people to do anything, I don't agree with. <laughs> but <laughs> I think you have to give people choices. And yeah. uh, I, I, the only benefit I see about coming back to the office, when you're in back office, you're not, not actively serving uh, customers, uh, is that you, have, you, can more, you can socialize better. You met, yeah. meet people, which is something that is suffering, of course, because people do work from home. Mm-hmm. That's that's true. I mean, we Amanda and I work in a situation where it's hybrid, and it's you know it, it is it's different. But the thing is that because you don't go into the office that much, you spend a lot of time talking to people instead of working. Well, that, that's okay. <laughs> I understand, and you're that's that's okay. at home. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But I think that's all right too because yeah. every some people would find it hard to believe, but I do think that the interaction between employees improves performance yeah so so and there's nothing no, nothing wrong with them doing that and uh and i do look forward to a day when we'll have a large percentage of our u.s workforce working from home remote working hmm. uh, and I, I think that's just beneficial for the employee the employer and the comp and the country but not necessarily the commercial real estate market no not necessarily <laughs> that <laughs> We have to pick and choose here. Anyway, I'll do fine. <laughs> well, listen, Gordon Simmons, I really appreciate you joining us today. It's been great. And uh, thank you very much. Maybe we could have you on some other time to, to share some of your wisdom about these things. So, you know, really found it very educational, edifying. So thanks thank again. You, thank you, Jeff, for your invitation. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Have a great day. Great. You too. And be well, everybody.